Hello and greetings and welcome to another edition of the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston, alongside Deborah Heiss. She'll be joining us here in just a bit as we get ready to take a look at another new issue of Live Happy magazine. Very proud to have them as a partner. The new issue going to be hitting newsstands and your digital edition in the Apple iTunes Store and the Google Play Store. And also got to thank our partner, Life Reimagined, their website, lifereimagined.org slash happy. They've got all kinds of things for you to try out, and they say, as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Well, find out more by going to lifereimagined.org slash happy. New issue time, always an exciting time around the office as Deborah Heiss joins us here. And uh, this issue... Uh, we say it every time, but this one could be the best one yet. All kinds of good stuff coming at us uh, this summer, talking about flourishing and uh, celebrities making big appearances here with us. But first, before we get to that, another exciting time around the office, International Day of Happiness. Yeah. How cool is that? That was, a, that was a good time this year. It's always a great time. This year, you know, the weather held for us in many places. In a few places, uh, people were hosting walls and just got drenched. <laughs> but they, they had an awesome time, particularly in Florida, where our founder, Jeff Olson, was. They absolutely got hammered with a thunderstorm in the middle of it. They didn't care. They you, can't, have, you can't not have fun. Right? It's, yeah, I it's mean, internationally of happiness. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's, always, it's always a great time. You know, it gives people out, uh, the opportunity to go out and share happiness and why they're happy. And for those of you who, listeners who don't know or who missed it, we did a thing called March to Happiness where we uh, texted to your phone an idea for a, a happy act for every day, whether it's, you know, buy a, a coworker coffee or, you know, uh, say thank you to your mother, whatever it was. We had a series of 30 of those. And then... Um, we also put up these large orange walls in very public places around the country and actually around the world where we just ask people to share happiness. Tell us how they're going to make the world a happier place. And it's it's engaging. Um, people are a little bit taken aback. They think you're trying to sell them something, and they're like, wait a minute, are you in a cult? And the answer to all those <laughs> questions is no. We just uh, want to make sure that people are aware that they can uh, make themselves happier, they can choose happiness, and they can help other people do that as well. And it's a tremendous day, tons of feedback, lots of TV interviews, lots of radio interviews. It's just exhausting, but the... Uh, uh, the the outcropping of that is really um, a great day, and and it, I really think that we're gaining momentum every year. It gets bigger. This year we had uh, seventy walls that yeah. we hosted, and uh, countless schools that also did walls. It, it was a great thing. So you know, for those of you who are listening, go to go to happyacts.org, happyacts.org. Check out what we're doing and join us next year. Um, but yeah, we have a wrap up article in the magazine and. and I can't. I can't express how much fun that day is. It was a good time, and you mentioned those videos, the little uh, acts you can do. I benefited from those. You did. Yeah, there's the one where it says "cook a meal for a loved one," and that video, I ate that meal. Oh wow! That, that meal was for me. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out well. That does work out well. So, as you can see, there's living proof that it affects people in a good and positive way. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of good stuff in this magazine, and May uh, it, launching in May, and of course, May every year means. Indy 500, Memorial Day weekend. It's a fantastic time, even if you're not a race fan. And we've got one of the legends, absolute legends of racing. You know this name, even if you don't know racing, Mario Andretti. Yeah, we did. And it, it's, a, it's a great article. It's him looking back at his career. Um, you know, obviously, Indianapolis 500, um, uh, Memorial Day weekend, Sunday before Memorial Day. It's, it's, a, it's an American tradition. And 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jr. and I are both huge sports fans, and I think yeah. we probably watch anything that uh, was sporting. Yeah, anything with competition. <laughs> anything that's competitive. Cup stacking. Uh, uh, maybe not cup car stacking. Car racing. Maybe not, no, maybe not cup sta- stacking and maybe not professional bowling, but pretty much. Well, I mean, okay. can't, don't have time for everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it, it was a great article because he really is not only uh, a famous race car driver, but he's a team owner. His entire family is involved in the business. Mm. And it was really for us an honor to get to feature him in this particular issue. And, and he's iconic. I mean, like you said, if you've never seen a, a professional race in your life, you've probably heard the name Mario Andretti. Yeah, for sure. There's also a uh, fantastic uh, cover artist here. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy, uh, he's been really everywhere since Modern Family broke onto the national consciousness. Jesse Tyler Ferguson is on the cover as we roll through the celebrities making appearances here. What's what's he talking about? Well, you know, like a lot of the celebrities we do, he talks about how, how he's living a happy, how he maintains a happy lifestyle. What's interesting about Jesse is he's probably one of the busiest people um, in Hollywood today. Yeah. I mean, he has he not only has Modern Family, but he does stand up comedy. And then he's got he's got a new Broadway play that's opening where he's it's a one man. Sh- it's a one man show on Broadway. And the thing about him, when we talked to some, you know, the writer talked to some of his co-stars, he's an incredibly humble person. I mean, it's not like he feels like he's not the center of attention and when he when he is. And mm-hmm. so it's always interesting um, to get the perspective of other people. They interviewed Ty Burrell and they interviewed, um, you know, some of I can't uh, some of his other co-stars. And they all kind of said the same thing, which is whatever he says he's not good at. He's probably lying. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but it, he's a really kind of a down to earth person, seems really centered. Um, he, he, he loves cooking. So we talk a little bit about that. Uh, it, it really is a good article um, that gives you a glimpse into a life of someone who's very busy but makes it all work and really feels like he's he's flourishing um, in his life. And oh, it, definitely. And it's the right time for him. Um, I love him on Modern Family. I, I look forward to seeing the Broadway show. But really, he, He's great on every talk show for all the reasons you're talking about, too. He's down to earth. He's willing to do anything to be funny and personable, and he, he makes it all come together. And I like that you mentioned that he's flourishing because he's become – uh, big stars, especially since Modern Family took off. But this entire issue deals with flourishing and ways to flourish within your own life, specifically in the workplace, like Jesse Tyler Ferguson has. Right. Well, you know, flourishing is a big topic for happiness. Um, you know, Martin Seligman's book is Flourish, where he introduces the permit concept. You know, the entire idea of happiness is how do we take our lives and really flourish you know, experience what we want, make the most and maximize. And there's, um, you know, there's a whole article in here about ideas about how you can flourish in your life at work, you know, things you can do to get better at work. But there's also, you know, ideas on how you can flourish at home. And when we're talking about flourishing, we're really talking about that living your best life, reaching your greatest potential in the areas you want mm-hmm. to be successful in. And most of us want to be successful at working at home. Um but most of us don't know how. And I, I encourage everybody to pick up the magazine and just read that article and read those tips because, you know, we if we don't take the time to be our best selves, no one else is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if, if not you, then who? Yeah. It's like no one's better at being you than you. And no one, no one can do your, your job better than you. Right. Uh, so learn how to drive that engagement. Learn how to get the most out of it. And really, there, there's ways that you can really impact uh, your entire workplace and, and make it better for everybody around you. 
it reminds me of my grandfather would always say, you know, if if I'm not going to be the one to tell you how awesome I am. <laughs> well, I don't think who it, will. I don't that, th- that's the better, more productive <laughs> way yeah. of using that uh, that sentence structure. You know, but you know, yes, I don't necessarily think that that we're advocating that. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're not advocating arrogance at all. We're just we're just saying, you know, you can you can if if not you to take charge, <laughs> no one else is going to. Yeah, you need to take charge of your own life. And no, I don't think arrogance and happiness are necessarily uh, connected. No, I don't. In <laughs> fact, I think I would argue almost the exact opposite. Yes, of there's that. a little bit of humbleness uh, required to be truly happy. <laughs> Another thing that's coming up in this issue, we talk about expressive writing. And joining us on the episode today is Dr. Joshua Smythe, a professor of behavioral health and medicine at Penn State. How about that? Someone uh, going to be on Live Happy Now from Happy Valley. I know. I know. It's ter- ter- terribly. Ter- <laughs> terribly coincidental. Ter- terribly coincidental. No. He's the uh, co-author of an upcoming book, Opening Up and Writing It Down and How Expressive Writing Improves Health and Eases Emotional Pain. And he's also got an article in the magazine. Well, he was interviewed for an article, which is, is a really good article. Of course, you know, putting together a magazine, we all we all here at Live Happy have a bent for writing in the written word. But this article really talks about how you can use writing as, you know, really a self uh, a self motivational tool or a self-analysis tool. I'm trying to avoid the word analysis because, of course, it isn't a replacement for actual therapy uh, if, if, if you need therapy. But it really is a way that you can get a handle on your emotions, and it's a different type of mindfulness practice that you can employ to improve your happiness and really create awareness of where maybe there's areas you need to work on in your own life or things you need to let go of. It's, a, it's an advocate, um, you know, a, a piece of forgiveness. If you do this, you're going to be close. It's an exercise that can lead you to forgiveness where you need to mm-hmm. forgive or an exercise where you can lead to, oh, I'm wondering why I'm wo- thinking about this constantly. Well, let me write it down. So there's a great article about expressive writing um, and using expressive writing as a tool to build your happiness. But of course, uh, Dr. Joshua Smythe has a lot more information on that as an actually an expert in it. Yeah, let's bring Dr. Smythe in uh, to the conversation, talk about how expressive writing can help manage stress and, in fact, improve well-being overall. Dr. Smythe, thank you for being on the show today. Uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You have a upcoming book called Opening Up by Writing It Down, How Expressive Writing Improves Health and Eases Emotional Pain. For our listeners out there, there's an article he was interviewed for in our current issue of the magazine on expressive writing. But can you tell us a little bit what expressive writing is? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because there, of course, is a long history of um, both sort of empirical study of, but also just people using emotions and emotional expression and and the many aspects of doing that through writing um, for a variety of purposes. And what we've done um, in our book and in a lot of our research is to really try to narrow down uh, the context within which people can follow a fairly structured program of writing, uh, often in a sort of a non-supervised and self-directive way that can uh, express their deepest thoughts and feelings about powerfully emotional events, sometimes negative, sometimes positive, sometimes about uh, the future. And what we've seen is that uh, doing so often can lead individuals to reduce their stress, improve their happiness, uh, and in fact even become physically uh, healthier and uh, have higher sort of quality of life and well-being. Uh, it's it's interesting that you do mention that because I even just this week things have gotten stressful at times at work and you can pull out a sheet of paper and write down a story or write what's going on or even just doodle and whatnot and that can help relieve stress. 
but what is it about stress? What, what, how can it pose a risk to our health and wellness? Yeah, another great question. Stress is, um, of course, ubiquitous. We, we all experience stress at some time, and it's, it's part of our normal capacity to interact with our environment. And in some sense, the way to think about stress is it's the challenge of adapting to a changing environment. And for the most part, that's healthy. And in fact, that we can do so and experience stress helps us respond in the short term to these challenges in our life, whether they're emotional or physical or interpersonal or a work challenge. The, the difficulty with stress becomes, in essence, if stress becomes too much or too long. Uh, and at that point, our, the capacity of our body to maintain this state of arousal and response readiness is overwhelmed. and. In essence, it, it starts to shut down. A sort of a simple way to think about this is, you know, we can all run. And, and we differ in how much we can run, how long we can run, how fast we can run. But we all have limits. And at some point, you're running along and you're going very fast, and that's great. You're going very fast, and then you get very tired. <laughs> uh, and if you push it too far, uh, you could fall down, you could pass out. And, and analogously, that's what happens to our body under stress. It allows us to run very quickly, literally or metaphorically, but then can break down after extended or extreme periods of exertion. What? What is the difference between what some people like to call good stress versus bad stress? I mean, I think that that's part of uh, what we look at when we look at happiness is, you know, there's some things that are good that also bring us stress. Is, is there a different biological reaction to good stress versus versus bad or negative stress? Oh, excellent question. Um, so one term that's been used for many hundreds of years is this concept of eustress, and it's it's this more positive stress, stress that we see as a challenge or an opportunity, a way to grow. And that's sort of a useful shorthand for thinking about what might be positive, is if we feel that positive engagement with this, whether that's um, hosting family for a holiday, which is a positive event but can be stressful, or planning a wedding, or even something like major work challenges, but the idea that I can personally or professionally or interpersonally grow from these experiences tends to make them be evaluated as more positive or good stress than ones that are sort of foisted on us by fate or happenstance that we would perfectly be happy not having to deal with whatsoever, don't see any positive effects. Uh, as you asked about the sort of biological consequences, it's a little bit trickier. Uh, the work on that is harder to do. Uh, but there is some evidence that we see more negative uh, and more extreme biological responses when we're responding to what we view as bad or negative stress than when we do positive stress. What's less clear to this day is whether, in fact, our stress responses are uh, particularly different in those two contexts, which they may or may not be. What is clear is when we're engaging in the more positive aspects of stress or more positive stressful experiences, our bodies are also responding to that, and they're releasing uh, chemicals or biological or physiological processes in response to the sort of happiness and challenge and optimism that help offset some of the risk associated with the negative changes that might be happening due to the stressful aspects of the experience. Let's say for the sake of the discussion that we're experiencing stress that isn't also releasing those endorphins. How do, how do people cope with that stress and in what ways have they tried that maybe doesn't work as well as you would think it would? One of the, the real challenges with coping, of course, is we tend to think that there should be some perfect way of coping and it might be 
meditation, it might be prayer, it might be exercise. The challenge is that we have to match our coping to not just the individual's preferences and capabilities, but also the specific uh, challenges of the environment or, or context that's producing the stress. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't a coping strategy that works. Um, it's really about people finding specific strategies uh, that match the challenge uh, that they're facing. One, one uh, sort of, again, sort of uh, concrete example of this would be um, if there's a problem that you're facing that's causing you stress and you can do something about it. So, you know, you have been notified your tax returns will be audited or you have an examination at work or in school. It's very adaptive to cope with that by preparing or studying or gaining material. On the other hand, if, if the challenge uh, is something that you have no control over and, and really can't influence. So a loved one has passed away or something that you really can't exert control over, trying to do so and trying to make changes to that circumstance not only is often not helpful but can make things worse. So it's really about matching what you're trying to do with what your needs and goals are and the nature of the circumstance. Let's get back to expressive writing. So how does expressive writing help in ways that other methods for trying to cope with stress don't serve the purpose? Earlier in thinking about how expressive writing would be helpful, there was an assumption that it was really uh, a sort of a cathartic exercise, that it was about the venting or ventilation of emotional uh, experiences that maybe we were keeping secret or hidden from ourselves or others. And it turns out it doesn't appear to be so simple. And it's still a, a sort of a work in progress for us figuring out all of the details. But what does seem to be um, true is that there are several essential elements. And one is that there is a narrative component to expressive writing. And I mean that in the literal sense. So it's not, you could write, you can also speak into a tape recorder, you can type on your computer. There's nothing particularly magical about writing per se, but the use of language appears to be essential. And beyond even putting your emotional experiences and thoughts into words, which um, changes the way those experiences are reflected neurologically in your brain states, but also the more you can impose a coherent narrative, a story-like structure, a clear temporal, uh, you know, start, middle, and end, and, and sort of tie it into aspects of your life, the more expressive writing seems to help people uh, manage or, or sort of reduce their stress, increase their happiness. So this idea of making sense of the world, of making sense of your experiences and how they uh, impact you and your life um, seem to be uh, essential. The one other aspect that seems potentially important with the expressive writing intervention, as, as we often use it in our research, is that it is a relatively private thing. And, and again, this is a, a, a subtle point and, and, of course, a good uh, therapy session or, or a supportive, kind friend and listener can be wonderful. But it's also very clear that when we express particularly negative emotional states or experiences to others, we don't always get kind and supportive answers. Mm. And so that can be very complicated and, and unsurprisingly can make people feel worse if they are not um, well received. And so one aspect of sort of benefit that expressive writing has is you can do this as a private task. You can keep your writing private. Um, so you are in essence, finding a way to disclose, uh, but not to others in a social setting where stigma or negative responses might occur, but rather in a private way, but still garnering that benefit of 
sort of translating your powerful emotional experiences into language and narrative. It gives you a chance to sort of see and process your emotions. It, it ties into something we talk a lot about, which is mindfulness. It, it gives you the chance to to see in front of you in in all in so many ways tangible uh, words what you're feeling. Uh, when is this type of of expressive writing? When is this most helpful? When when should someone uh, employ this method? We tend to um, suggest that um, people test this on their own. Of course, I mean it's very hard to make blanket recommendations. What mm-hmm. we can say is that we sort of think of this as preventive maintenance. So this is a useful tool to engage in episodically, perhaps when you have upheavals or challenges in your life or you find yourself thinking frequently, uh, sort of ruminating in a a non-positive way about an event or an experience and, and, and see if this may help. We certainly don't suggest that, you know, sitting by yourself and engaging in expressive writing should replace therapy or replace, uh, you know, psychological or medical treatment in the case of very serious challenges. Um, But certainly in this sort of preventive maintenance or sort of ongoing self-care, part of your sort of mental health hygiene is, is the way we like to think about it. It'd be sort of a mental health supplement that you can take before you, you know, to, to help you build that, uh, that uh, positive mental health, a regimen, if you will. Exactly. So how often do you recommend people engage in this practice and for how long? I mean, what, what would be like, if I wanted to try this out, um, how, how should I go about getting started? And when should I, when should I expect to see some benefit? As people start, again, we sort of urge people to test different durations, different frequencies, um, and find what works for them. People seem to be very different in how much and how often they're comfortable engaging in these processes. Um, What we generally tend people to do is to find a um, structured time and place to engage in writing. This might be several consecutive days or one day a week for several weeks. We typically advise people to start with three to five sessions of approximately 20 to 30 minutes each. We um, sort of recommend that people find a safe, private, and quiet space where they won't be disturbed, try to write continuously. What you should write about, uh, again, you can write about many things. We typically suggest starting by writing about um, powerful emotional experiences in your life. They might be positive, they might be negative, but they should be those things that are um, involved with you at the moment. You're thinking about them, you're behaving in response to them, you're living them, uh, and write about how they make you feel, your thoughts, your feelings, how they may connect to your past, your present, your future, and try to sort of work through. And it's okay if people have to repeat the writing, if they sort of temporarily get uh, sort of micro writer's block, um, but persist in doing this for a few days. If people choose to write about more emotionally challenging events, more negative events, it is unlikely they will feel wonderful immediately at the end of writing. Um, The act of sort of thinking through much the same way we do on our own, um, these negative challenges can be upsetting in the short run. We almost always find that that sort of um, being upset or being challenged by this dissipates very quickly, uh, you know, within an hour or two in almost all cases. So it's almost um, it's a, kind of a cathartic experience when you when you uh, 
even though it's not immediately relieving, you still kind of worked through it to a point that it makes it easier to let go of negative feelings? Is that kind of the... That's right. They state that, you know, overwriting sessions, you'll find that you um, get upset less as you go back into these experiences. You start to have some perspective. It was something you mentioned a little while back. You start to develop more of this narrative and story-like feature. And it starts to make more sense to you and how it's impacting you and how it might impact you in the future. There are probably uh, downstream effects from this as well. And so you could imagine that if something was really quite bothering me and it got me quite upset when I thought about it or tried to talk about it, I would be unable to effectively share that experience with my loved ones or friends or family. And perhaps after writing for several sessions, I've now come to a place where I can more easily talk about it or share it, and that opens up other aspects of interpersonal support or uh, perhaps even unrelated to disclosure. I'm better able to connect with friends and family because I'm less preoccupied with some other event. Is there anything to this notion that simply engaging the creative process can in many ways change the way you perceive things or your thought process or your outlook on things? Yes, um, we, we've explored this uh, in a number of contexts, looking at other sort of creative and artistic expressions, ranging from music to art to dance, as well as writing. The, um, at the broadest level, it does appear that engaging in uh, activities, creative and, and artistic activities that a person finds enjoyable can be helpful. Hmm. Um, it also appears clear, however, that those that involve language, even if it's not formally, um, but sort of, or any organizing sort of narrative-like features. So that might, um, an example of that might be a dance that sort of is a dance that temporarily covers some experience, even though it's non-linguistic. Hmm. Those sorts of organizational processes in creative and artistic expression seem to be better than those that merely focus on the translation of emotion into some new medium. Very interesting stuff. Dr. Joshua Smythe uh, joining us here again, the book, upcoming book, Opening Up by Writing It Down, How Expressive Writing Improves Health and Eases Emotional Pain. So much that I think we can learn from from ourselves just from doing this. And uh, we appreciate you doing some writing on it as well so that we can learn more uh, by reading your words. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, if you would like a free sketch note of this episode and to learn the six steps to expressive writing, visit livehappynow.com and tune in next week as we talk to Linda Swain, creator, producer, and television host of Tapping in the Happiest People and Places on the Planet. Also, make sure to reach out to us on Twitter at livehappy, facebook.com slash livehappy, or send us an email, podcast at livehappy.com if there's something you took away from this conversation that you would like to comment on or if there's something you would like to hear in the future. For Deborah Heiss and for Joshua Smythe, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, thank you, and remember to always live happy.